The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. A gorgeous young mother of two seemingly vanishes while she's out on a bike ride on Mother's Day of all days. She's all alone. No children, no husband, no nothing. Her bike is found on a remote bike trail. B.S. You could smell that a mile away. Suzanne Morphew did not have a bike accident on Mother's Day. She's dead. Somebody killed her, the body yet to be found, but bombshell right now. The case is in court against husband Barry Morphew for a preliminary hearing. The state is in the sorry position of having to reveal their cards and allow many of their witnesses be cross-examined before we even strike a jury. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. One of the many, many bombshells we've just learned about, including this. Take a listen to our friends at CBS4 Denver. Prosecutors in this case said that they had eight witnesses scheduled for the first two days so far. We've only heard from two of those witnesses, as well as just several of apparently 450 different exhibits they plan to present. So far, we've seen text messages between Suzanne and her best friend. We also learned quite a bit about a two-year affair that Suzanne allegedly had. We also saw extensive text messages between Suzanne and her best friend from Indiana, Sheila Oliver, where she called Barry a narcissist and made plans to leave him when her youngest daughter left for college. Barry allegedly knew nothing of Suzanne's affair. She didn't even tell her friends. Investigators said that the only reason they found out about this affair was due to a spy pen that she purchased thinking that Barry was also having an affair. There is no doubt in my mind that Barry Morphew did know about his wife's affair, and I'm not so sure he wasn't playing the field as well. Take a listen to our friends at 9 News Denver, our cut 70. 
Investigators said today that Suzanne Morphew had a two-year-long affair leading up to the day that she disappeared. Now, they say that she spied on her husband, Barry, using a spy pen, believing that he was having an affair as well. Investigators do not believe that Barry was having an affair. Now, the man investigators called her lover did not come forward to investigators when she disappeared and only spoke with them months after she was missing when they learned about the affair. Okay, that's not a good look. If this is true, he's having an affair with Suzanne Morphew. She goes missing, and he never calls police. Just who is this guy? And I still don't believe that Barry Morphew was not having an affair himself. Why would she, Suzanne Morphew, buy a spy pen to try to catch him in his affair? I guarantee you, she knows more than we know. With me, an all-star panel to break it down and put it back together again. First of all, California prosecutor, author of Red Flags, WendyPatrickPhD.com, and host of Today with Dr. Wendy KCBQ, Dr. Jory Crosen, psychologist, faculty, St. Leo University, research consultant, and you can find him at bw-institute.com. With me, Cheryl McCollum, founder and director of the Cold Case Research Institute, forensics expert at coldcasecrimes.org, Joe Scott Morgan, you know him well, death investigator, forensics professor at Jacksonville State University, author of Blood Beneath My Feet and start of a brand new hit series, Piketon Massacre. And you can hear that on iHeart. Sydney Stell joining us, news reporter KRDO News 13. And also Spencer Corson, founder, president, Corson Security Group.com and author of The Safety Trap. First to you, Sydney Stell. I'm really having it, uh, I'm having a hard time believing that Barry Morphew, now the target in the middle of a courtroom, was not having an affair. Why else would his wife buy a spy pen to spy on him and catch him if he weren't having an affair? And what's this business that she was planning to run away to Ecuador? I mean, this woman obviously wanted out in the marriage. And just let me give you a compound question, totally disallowed in the courtroom, but we're not in court. Look around. You're in a studio. Next question, is it true Barry Morphew told Suzanne Morphew before she went missing, who's going to pay your cancer bill if you leave me? I hope the jury hears that. Go ahead. There were texts between um, between Suzanne and her best friend from college, Sheila, where she was breaking down that he would constantly do things like hold money over her head. Um, be whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. What did you say about money? He, she, he, she told her best friend that um, it was pretty common for him to hold money over her head. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the money hers? Didn't she have the, what money they did have, family money, and they used her money from her family to buy their mansion? That's correct. But, but, okay, I'm sorry. I know I asked you a lot of questions, but let me just go straight out to Cheryl McCollum. Did you hear that? She brings the money to the table. He builds this huge house, and then he tells her, how are you going to pay your hospital bills if you leave me? It was all her money. You know, she called him a narcissist, Nancy. He only thinks and cares about himself. That's what his wife had to say about him. And there's all types of control in a marriage, money being one of the biggest ones. 
I'm just learning a lot of this. Sydney Stell, back to you. Sydney joining us, KRDO Channel 13. You can find her on Twitter at Sydney Stell. Go ahead, Sydney. A lot of bombshells in the courtroom. I don't even understand why they're having a preliminary hearing, Sydney. You got to help me out on that because when you want a case indicted, you can go to a grand jury, a secret grand jury. They're all secret. Or you can have a preliminary hearing where you parade your most vital evidence in front of a judge. Your witnesses are cross-examined. The defense gets a test run in order for the judge to go, yeah, you've got enough evidence. This should be tried. Why are they doing a prelim? We're not sure why they're doing a prelim. I will say I'm really grateful that they are because so many of the court documents in this case have been sealed. So we have really not known almost anything about why he was charged. We learned the arrest affidavit is more than 100 pages. Uh, It's still not accessible to the public. So we don't know why he was charged with first-degree murder a year after she disappeared. Um, And, you know, from the first day of of these hearings, we didn't hear a lot of evidence that, I mean, we heard a lot of circumstantial evidence, but not a lot of things that tie them together. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't like what you just said. We only heard circumstantial evidence. Let me ask you a question, Sydney, as I put it to many, many a juror. If you went into your office, okay, there at KRDO, and when you went in, it was sunny outside, not a cloud in the sky. You leave for lunch, okay? You go out to get a salad. You go in the parking lot, and there's pools of water. The sky is dark. Women are rushing by, holding their raincoats to their chest. Men have umbrellas. What do you think happened while you were inside? I mean, that's a fair point. No, no. What do you think happened? What would you think happened? I mean, obviously, in that situation, we would think it rained, right? But Okay, so you didn't see the storm, but you know it rained. You don't need me beating you in the head with a hammer telling you it rained. You figured it out on your own. That's what circumstantial evidence is. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Guys, we are talking about this case, Suzanne Morphew, gorgeous mom, two daughters, disappears. Her bike is found in a remote trail. The first thing the husband says is, oh, she was eaten by a mountain lion. No doubt about it. Get real. He killed her. Okay, back to you, Sydney Stell. Uh, you mentioned something about a spy pen, and I just want to go right there to Spencer Corson, founder, president, Corson Security Group, author of The Safety Trap. Spencer, I hope you've never had to buy a spy pen to spy on your loved one, whoever that may be, because, I mean, security is your cup of tea. You know all about the gadgets. But when you have to buy, if I had to buy, go to, I guess not Radio Shack anymore, go on Amazon and get a spy pen, I might as well just go ahead and file for divorce or else burn the house down. I mean, when you got to get a spy pen, it's too late. Yes, a, a spy pen for for those who may not know exactly what it is 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 a is a a functional pen that also has a voice recorder built into it. They can range from thirty minutes of recording time to about two hours of recording time. But the the issue with a spy pen is the the quality of the audio. You really have to be holding the pen in your hand for it to to get a a good recording. Otherwise, you see if it's like 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet away, which is why I believe the FBI forensic team had to come into 
uh, quote, enhance the audio of those recordings. So let me understand this. Um, would you agree? Yes, no, Dr. Jory Crossan, faculty St. Leo. Uh, if you're at the point in your relationship, you have to buy a spy pen and basically place it right under their nose to catch what they're saying. It's over. Yeah, especially from what I've heard about the husband is narcissistic tendencies, uh, the power and control and stuff. And uh, it seems like that may have been her means of getting documentation with the plan and getting a divorce down the road and using whatever she was able to develop through that spy pen. You know, Cheryl McCollum, director of Cold Case Research Institute, we met in the trenches in the DMZ. And uh, long story short, don't you just love it when the psychiatrist and the psychologist all say narcissistic, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's a technical legal term for that, Cheryl. It's called a POS. Absolutely. No question about it. This guy fits that to a T. Again, you, you can look at even when she goes missing. He's not the one that calls police for help. He's not the one calling friends saying, hey, help me find her. He's that reporter missing a neighbor does. You know, Cheryl, I know you've heard this story. Everybody just take two. Jackie, I don't know if you've heard this story, but my husband, David, is true blue as they come. Travels a lot for his job. He always texts me when he touches down. He texts me when he gets his rental car. And at some point that evening, he texts me when he gets back to his hotel room. He usually texts me at, at supper time, too. All right. One night, he didn't. This after years and years of knowing each other. He didn't text when he got to his hotel room. I had my assistant, poor D, up with me till 4 a.m., tracking, trying to find him and make sure he was okay. Finally, after threatening to sue the night manager at a hotel, the guy finally went and knocked on his door. David came to the door. He was fine. He was worn out. He'd been up since four o'clock that morning and fell asleep. I mean, you're right, Cheryl. If your husband, your wife, the one you loved is missing, I'd move heaven and earth to find David. And the story you just told was the thing I was going to say next is the pre and post behavior. What is their routine about texting and calling each other, FaceTiming each other, especially when he's out of town? Ooh, that's right. Going out of town on Mother's Day. That's a whole nother can of worms. But I'm getting into the facts of the case. But let me quickly ask you, Wendy Patrick, California prosecutor, author Red Flags, host of Today with Dr. Wendy, KCBQ. I could go on and on and on about her qualifications. But Wendy, come on. You know, I've had a lot of defense attorneys argue, like in this case, no body, no case. Uh-uh. N-O. I'm not giving anybody a gold star because they managed to get rid of the body. Yeah, that's especially true nowadays, Nancy, where there are just too many options open to people as to how to dispose of evidence. And that's a sad set of affairs, but that's where we are in an age of CSI and all the kinds of crime dramas and all of these scenarios that may come into place. So you're right. As we used to say, no body, no problem in terms of bringing a case. But as we discussed earlier with Sydney, it's that circumstance circumstantial evidence and this is a circumstantial case but the jury's going to be instructed it's just as good as direct evidence it's just a different method of proving what we need to prove the motive is usually also something that comes up in this vein we don't have to prove motive either but it sure is nice to have one and i'm sure that'll be established here you know what we're talking about an affair 
There's really no way around it. Suzanne Morphy was having an affair for two years. But who is this guy that did not come forward when he first learns Suzanne Morphy has disappeared? Take a listen to our friends at Crime Online, our Cut 61. Suzanne Morphew was having an affair and had been for two years. The man she was seeing, Jeff Liebler, was a classmate from high school and a married father of six. Investigators say Suzanne would tell her husband that she was having a girls' weekend with her best friend and would instead meet Liebler. The pair met up to six times in multiple states, including Louisiana, Texas, Indiana, and Florida. The affair began in 2018 when Morphew contacted the Michigan man saying, Howdy, stranger. The first time the couple met in person was in New Orleans, but an intimate physical relationship did not begin at that time. That began in 2019. Nude photos were also exchanged, as well as I love yous. Morphew and Liebler had also talked about getting married one day and moving to Ecuador to live a simpler, less expensive life. Nude photos. You know what? I, and I, I, Joe Scott Morgan, could you leave a trail any wider than nude photos? Do you know, Joe Scott, my children, they're seventh graders. One of their little friends uh, made nude photos, and guess what? They leaked. What do you think? With 12 and 13-year-olds, a little girl 13 makes nude photos and sends them? Long story short, uh, even my twins now know. They didn't know till I found out about this. D -d don't do that. I mean, and here, of course, you know Barry Morphy found those. I'm sure that he did, Nancy. Yeah, that's a 13-year-old that you're talking about. Uh, this is, we're talking about grown, grown, grown adults here. Don't you know better? Because if you're trying to hide something, remember this had gone on uh, two years. She, it's not like she had him over, over to the house in Colorado. Uh, they met in, in these divergent places around the country, engaged in this behavior, uh, and knew, you know, we're planning this clandestine uh, trip to, uh, you know, to Central America in order to get married at some point in time in their world. But you know. You your electronic breadcrumbs everywhere you go. And for that important piece, this goes back to what Spencer was talking about relative to the pen. Uh, that's still a piece of the pie. You know, it, we've, we've been sitting around scratching our heads uh, collectively for months, just wanting any kind of little drip of information about this. Suddenly, it looks like the dam's starting to break a little bit and we're the, the pieces are kind of falling into place, but the one big piece that we're still missing, of course, is Suzanne's body. And for me, as a medical legal death investigator, that in that, that's where the evidence lies. I want to know how she came to her end. Where is her body? Don't give me this nonsense about mountain lines. There's no drag marks. There's no blood trails. There's nothing to indicate that some large apex predator drug her off of that bike down into a trail, into the woods. We have nothing at this point. But I tell you what, this is an isolated area. There's any number of places where her body could be out there. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
Guys, we are talking about a preliminary hearing that is going down in a court of law right now. We are finally hearing evidence regarding the case of Barry Morphew and the disappearance of his wife, Suzanne. Straight back out to Sydney Stell, reporter KRDO. Have we heard any developments regarding how she was killed and where is her body? No, we haven't. Um, we know that they didn't. investigators didn't find blood anywhere. They didn't find it near where her bike was found. They didn't find it in the house, any of their vehicles. So they didn't find anything like that. Although um, they did ask yesterday, um, Linda Stanley, the district attorney, she asked, you know, does there need to be blood for there to be a murder? And uh, the law enforcement um, expert that she was interviewing obviously said no. So we don't have evidence of that. Um, the bike where it was found, um, it was in a place where she wouldn't normally bike because the terrain was way too steep. It was too difficult for her. And the body footage they showed made it look like someone had kind of just dumped it over the side of the counter. Oh, yeah. We have blood. We don't have anything that, you know, we might. I'm sorry, you're cutting out on me, Sydney Stell. Sydney is talking about the lack of forensic evidence to show what happened to Suzanne Morphy. I'm looking at one particular text that she had sent her best friend, Sheila Oliver. She said, I'd live in a shack right now. She wanted out of the marriage so desperately. She goes on to say, I'm sure he, Barry Morphy, won't make it easy. He has always wanted control. We know that Suzanne Morphew's brother claimed that there was domestic violence within the marriage, but right now, seemingly, Suzanne Morphew's affair has taken center stage. Take a listen to our Cut 62. Suzanne Morphew told no one that she was seeing another man, and that man, Jeff Liebler, did not come forward on his own when the Colorado mom disappeared. In November 2020, sheriffs found out about the affair. We now know that a spy pen bought by Suzanne Morphew recorded at least one conversation between Suzanne Morphew and her lover. Investigators contacted the Michigan father. Liebler spoke with them, asking if he was a target in the investigation. He tells investigators that he deleted the accounts used to message Morphew. Liebler said he did that to protect himself and to shield Suzanne's reputation and legacy. I believe I would have uh, wanted to help in the missing persons investigation, but that's just me. What more do we know? Take a listen to our friends at Crime Online. Suzanne Morphew confided in friends that her marriage was strained. Sheila Oliver, Morphew's lifelong friend, said the Colorado mom wanted to leave her husband. Text messages shown in court between the friends included a reference to Barry Morphew as Jekyll and Hyde. Morphew complained Barry would use biblical scriptures to guilt trip her into forgiving him. Oliver also described domestic violence that included Barry smacking Suzanne into a wall and holding a gun to her head. Another report described how he once held a gun to his own head in an apparent suicide threat. Morphew told her friend that Barry was not stable. So bottom line, he was holding himself hostage with a gun to his head. It's one thing to have an affair. It's altogether different to decide you're going to divorce. But that was the point uh, at which Suzanne Morphew had landed. But right now, it's all about what's happening in a court of law. Take a listen to our friend Lauren Scharf at Fox 21. But wait, 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 wait. Let me go out to Sydney Stell before I play that. Sydney, describe for me what is happening in the courtroom. Um, as far as um, like who's in there, who's watching, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So his, uh, both Barry and Suzanne's daughters are both in the courtroom. Um, 
Macy and Mallory, and they are, the whole time they've been really supportive for Barry, and even yesterday, um, they kind of lifted their masks, they smiled at each other, um, one of his daughters showed him how long her hair had gotten, um, the whole family is still very supportive of Barry, they're all sitting on his side of the courtroom, and um, it, they're all still very supportive. You know, I recall uh, Sydney Stell at one point learning that Suzanne Morphew claimed her husband, Barry Morphew, now on tr facing trial for her murder, would try to turn her daughters against her when they would have arguments. What do you know about that? Yeah, she, she confided in her friend Sheila about that. She was really worried that he was going to turn them against her, and he kept like bringing them into the middle of their arguments. And so she said that really worried her. Um, but yeah, she, she did also say that she confided, though, in Macy, their younger daughter, who was 17. They confided in her, she confided in her about wanting to leave her father, and Macy was really supportive of that. Um, so Macy was just 17 years old. She was planning to leave him as soon as Macy was out of the house, which, you know, within a year. Um, but obviously, she never got that chance. Isn't it true to Dr. Jory Crawson, psychologist and faculty at St. Leo University, that the single most dangerous time for a battered woman is when she seriously tries to leave? Absolutely. Uh, I was just listening to several things that I keyed in on the power and control in this. Remember about he would use the forgiveness aspect to guilt her into forgiving him for past whatever. Okay, that's a form of power and control. And if he were to find out about her affair and that she's leaving him, he's now losing all control, uh, not only over her, but probably over himself. Uh, but, you know, there, there's enough there to have planned this to the point where, hey, they're not going to find the body. You know, they found the bike. The helmet was, what, seven miles down the road alongside the road. So, I mean, there's some planning here, but it still shows the power and control that he has. D. Spencer Corson, founder, president, Corson Security Group at CorsonSecurityGroup.com. I uh, volunteered at the Battered Women's Center for almost 10 years on the hotline at night. And when you actually try to leave your batterer, the, the person that's beating you and controlling you, that's a single most dangerous time for the victim. What's your advice for women like Suzanne Morphew in a battering relationship when they try to leave? The, the, the best course of action is to not, as best you can, not telegraph the fact that you are either planning to or thinking about or wanting to leave, but just to leave. And I understand that that is much easier said than done, but our willingness to protect ourselves needs to be stronger than our unwillingness to offend another. And when we are in those dire circumstances where we see that there's no way out, sometimes finding the courage in that first step to just leave and get out to somewhere safe where you can then, because we, we don't make rational judgments when we're under duress. So any chance you get to leave should be taken and any opportunity you have to not, you know, telegraph or, or give someone the inkling that you're going to do so will help to ensure the certainty of your safety in that departure. Aside from the two-year affair Suzanne Morphy was having with an old high school friend, 
What is the other evidence that is being presented at this preliminary hearing finally after having the evidence under seal for so long as uh, we are learning from Sidney Stell, we're finally getting a sense of what the evidence may reveal. I want you to take a listen to Our Cut 73. This is Jamie O'Leary at CBS 4 Denver. Something interesting that we also saw this morning was body cam video for the first time from the day that Suzanne went missing. It shows officers handling her bike, shouting her name, searching for her. And that evening, it shows Barry Morphew arriving at, on the scene, a large scene, about what had happened, asking to see the bike. He was interviewed at that scene for about 30 minutes, during which time that he suggested police look at the nearby suspicious RV park, or suggested maybe she was taken by a mountain lion. To this day, there has been no body found, and we learned from the investigator that not a drop of Suzanne's blood has been detected anywhere either. They say they are still looking for that body, most recently in a mine. The investigator did confirm for a murder case, you don't always need to find blood. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Okay, straight out to you, Joseph Scott Morgan, death investigator and professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University. No body and no blood. So what forensics can we use? I think the first place to start is going to be this electronic forensics. From what I understand, uh, the police went out and, you know, and I don't know what their rationale is, what they're seeing, but, you know, they told everyone in this area that had ring cams that they were coming to collect them. And I can't imagine how many people out in this isolated area would have these. But for some reason, they believe that, uh, you know, that something may have been captured along the way. I can tell you this about their house, though. You know, the police held it, I think, for either 12 to 14 days uh, and before it was released back to the family. And at that point in time, they did release a statement that said they didn't find any evidence within the home. Uh, and that's a that's a significant amount of time to search it thoroughly. I think that they brought the FBI in. I'm curious. I know the CBI, the state police were there as well. They search it from stem to stern to look for any kind of biological evidence that would indicate trauma. I would imagine that they probably went through the house with something like Blue Star or Luminol to try to illuminate any areas where maybe a blood cleanup had taken place. They would have had time to do that and nothing presented at that point in time. So from a forensic standpoint, you can rule the domicile out, at least it would appear from the police perspective. Now, I remember hearing at the time, I don't know if you recall this, Nancy, there was a co-worker of this guy that said that the hotel room that he had been staying in had the strong smell of bleach in it, chlorine, they said. And so, you know, I thought back to that time, could he have taken her somewhere and done something with her body? Is there unaccounted for time? And that's going to be the biggest tracking here. You know, does his alibi hold up? You know, being out of town, all these other things that seem so very convenient relative to his behavior as it applies directly to her disappearance and having nothing to hang her hat on forensically. What about it, Cheryl McCollum? How is the state going to prove the case? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Sydney Stell joining me, KRDO. I know they searched the home. Couldn't find any blood or suggestion of any type of a confrontation. Didn't cadaver dogs hit 
at one of Barry Morphy's work sites? Uh, I believe they did. And, you know, I think I think the big thing, I mean, we just talked about his alibi, whether or not that holds up. And we heard evidence yesterday that showed that his alibi did not hold up because he said that he left for uh, Broomfield County to go out of town for work at 5 a.m. that day. They were able to use technology to see when his truck doors were opening. They opened at 3 a.m. and again at 8 a.m. So he told investigators he left at 5. That can't be true if the evidence coming from his truck is accurate. So I think that's a big thing as far as the timeline goes and the alibi. It doesn't hold up based on what he told investigators. And at first, I believe, yeah, Cheryl, didn't at first, uh, and you and I worked till we were blue in the face trying to confirm that he was at some volunteer firefighter continuing education in Denver. It didn't exist. And then suddenly the story somehow morphed that he had a work site he had to go to. And he hastily threw together a crew, I think that morning, to go to this work site. And then when they got there, there was no work for them. Well, absolutely. I mean, we knew when you and I first talked that there's no way there's going to be any type of post-training on a weekend, much less a holiday weekend like Mother's Day. Doesn't happen. But I want to be real clear about something. I want to go back to the bicycle. Hey, 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 Cheryl, let me explain something that you just said. You remember every year there's a PAC prosecuting attorneys council continuing legal education. Uh, Every lawyer has to go to continuing legal education to keep your bar license every year. And we would carefully time it to be in August. Why? Because the U.S. Supreme Court takes their break in August. And because of that, many other courts, including the trial courts, take their break in August. So as not to miss work, we would have our prosecuting attorney's counsel legal education that week, those two weeks when all the judges were off. So what Cheryl is saying is correct. This firefighter continuing education would never have been on a weekend like a Mother's Day weekend. Just not going to happen. Okay, go ahead. Sometimes no evidence is evidence. And let me explain. Mm-hmm. If someone committed a hit and run while she was on that bicycle, if the mountain lion had got her and drug her, there would be evidence of that. The fact that there was no blood, no skid marks, no brake marks, no struggle, no damage to the bicycle, that's good evidence to me. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. Was positioned and staged there. So again, when you start putting together his alibi, his phone pinging, his doors opening, the smell of bleach, cadaver dogs, you're painting a picture you can't ignore, and that jury's not going to be able to ignore it either. Sydney's telling that we go ahead. Cheryl's talking about something we argue in court, Nancy, all the time. The cover-up is evidence of the crime. Because when you're covering something up, the behavior is going to be suspicious in and of itself. And as we talk this through, that appears to be what we're all saying, is that all of these things they're discovering now are evidence that this was a planned crime. This wasn't an accident. Of course, you know, we all know that we look inwards first. You look at the, the most likely suspects, the family members, the husband, and then you sort of work outwards. But all of this is coming together just fine, even though it's still circumstantial. Well, I got to tell you, the whole alibi issue for Barry Morphew is a huge red flag. Take a listen to our cut 37. This is our friend, Dr. Phil. 
the EVI information on his truck didn't line up, so he said he saw her at 5 a.m., and he did not. And, and how do you know that? Testimony from an employee that he was rambling down the road texting people at 4 in the morning trying to get up to the Broomfield. So... Can't be at home at 5. And talking to somebody on the road at 4. Right. That is so, so that the timeline doesn't add up at all. Yeah, not at all. You've got two nieces, Mallory, who's now 22, and Macy, who's 16. Would she go off riding by herself, or would she be in contact with them? Would she go off the radar for seven days and, and have no social media presence, no presence electronically for that period of time with, with her daughters? No, absolutely not. You're hearing uh, our friend, Dr. Phil, speaking to Suzanne's brother, Angie Mormon. Um, long story short, let me understand this. Sydney Stell, the morning Suzanne Morphew goes bike riding, husband Barry Morphew says he sees her, doesn't leave until 5 a.m. But an employee says he's riding down the road with Barry at 4 a.m. as he is hastily trying to put together a crew to go build a wall that's not even a real job. And that's coincidentally the day that she goes missing. Right? Right. And he's been really consistent with investigators saying at 5 a.m. she was sound asleep. I left her and I went to work. He's been really consistent about that. So obviously testimony from uh, an employee counteracts that. Also seeing the the data that his car door was open at 3 a.m. and not 5 a.m. So, yeah, I mean, he's maintaining that. But obviously Sydney, you're cutting out on me again. In the meantime, I want to hear more of what Andrew Mormon tells Dr. Phil, because this is about not one set, but two sets of cadaver dogs. Take a listen to our cut 31. We were fortunate enough to have search dogs in from Missouri and another set from New Mexico yesterday. And uh, we made a little discovery. Um, the dogs hit in a particular area, which we turned over to the FBI now. There's two areas of interest, and I've got a third one on the way tomorrow. So they actually hit on something. So tell me about these dogs. Two of them were small Australian shepherds, I believe. They were black and white. And uh, when they go in and they see something suspect or smell something suspect, they'll taste the grass and they'll circle the item many times, and then they'll finally sit down on it. And the German Shepherds behave almost the same way, only they get extremely excited. Their faces will wrinkle up, uh, their ears will come forward to catch scent. They'll also kind of scratch on the site. They'll dig. I hate to ask this, but are these scent and hunting dogs? Are these cadaver dogs? What type of, of training do these dogs have? A cadaver. I've dealt with a lot of uh, tracker dogs, scent dogs, fire dogs, drug dogs. But a cadaver dog only picks up on human tissue. Two sets of cadaver dogs aren't lying. But what were they picking up on? This is happening in a court of law right now. Still, nobody. Where is Suzanne Marfew? Nancy Grace, Crime Story, signing off. Goodbye, friend.